Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Facture is a new biennial journal from the National Gallery of Art that introduces the latest research on works in its permanent collection. Named for the manner in which things are made, the journal presents essays on conservation treatment, scientific research, and technical art history. In honor of the inaugural volume, this lecture, recorded on January 12, 2014, focuses on Renaissance masterworks, painting, sculpture, textiles, and works on paper in the gallery's collection. Good afternoon. My name is Mervyn Richard, and I'm the Chief of Conservation here at the National Gallery. My voice is not normally this low, so you have to bear with me. It's my pleasure today to introduce you to the first volume of a new biennial journal called Facture, which is named for the manner in which all things are made. It focuses on the National Gallery of Art's permanent collection with articles describing conservation treatments, scientific research, and technical art history. We are so proud of the results. It not only provides the reader with a wealth of information about the methods and materials of artists, but it's also an incredibly beautiful book with fantastic images. The first volume is dedicated to the late Ross Merrill, who was chief of conservation here at the National Gallery from 1983 to 2009. He was also a close personal friend for many people here. Ross was a firm believer that research and publication were essential essential professional activities for all of us. And he championed the publication of Factor's predecessor called Conservation Research. Four volumes were published between 1993 and 1997. This journal would not be possible without the support of a large number of people here at the gallery including our executive officers and the Board of Trustees. We take this opportunity to thank them for their support. In addition, I would like to express my gratitude to the many authors and those that supported those authors in writing the articles that you find in the publication. And finally, I would like to single out a few individuals who are from our publishing office. Judy Metro, who's the chief editor, Tam Breifogel, senior editor, Brad Ireland, senior designer, and John Long, the production manager. Without them, this publication would not have been possible in such a beautiful form. Now I'm introducing to you Daphne Barber, senior object conservator at the National Gallery. Okay, I'm, I'm less tall. Let's see. My objective is to sort of introduce the volume as a whole and then introduce our four speakers who will go over the individual roles and and goals of the the publication. The publication of Facture is an exciting development at the gallery because it provides us an opportunity to showcase our world-class collection from very intimate perspectives. Perhaps the greatest challenge and pleasure of working in a multidisciplinary field like conservation is the communication across different disciplines. Even more difficult, perhaps, is the synthesizing of these voices into one essay. As Merv already mentioned, our collaborative work combines conservation treatment, scientific analysis, and art historical inquiry to challenge traditional preconceptions. To give you a sense of the breadth of the topics included in Volume 1, I've chosen three brief examples. And you see at the top, uh, Jacopo Sansovino's Madonna and Child. It's a cartapesta, which is actually paper mache And it's our only paper mache Renaissance object in the collection. Then you have a small Renaissance bronze by Severo da Ravenna, which is another topic. And um, so you have bronze and paper mache And then the third one that I'm just going to briefly introduce to you is, is more about the history of collecting prior to the works arriving in our collection. Um, the essay on Jacopo Sansovino basically started with a conservation treatment here of the, the cartopesta, and the essay goes into the treatment itself. So on the left, you see the before treatment, and on the right, you see after. But prior to undertaking the conservation treatment, the conservator also um, took... undertook a technical study which involved taking pigment samples and x-rays and understanding the work of art. And so in that context, she compared it. The Cartapesta 
is a more affordable household devotional object than, say, a bronze or marble counterpart. And in this case, it was produced in multiples. And one thing she did after studying the, the cartapesta was to compare it to others, which you see on the bottom. One painted white, and some of these were painted white in the 19th century to simulate marble. And the other is just is another one in the Bargello. And then in the same essay, she considers a possible prototype in, in terracotta for all of the series, and that's in the center. Small bronze statuettes by Severo da Ravenna, works unlike the cartapesta just mentioned, um, were fabricated for wealthy Renaissance patrons, and their subject matter was primarily classical rather than religious. Oops, sorry. Here the author uses x-rays and metallurgical analyses to identify the casting process unique to Severo, and he compares the gallery's Neptune to one from the Frick collection, which as you also see. Um, so this theme is primarily connoisseurship, and it's another topic that is very much addressed in the volume. The history of works of art before they came to the gallery is another topic in the essay, and archival research consulting ledgers and scrapbooks. And you see in the corner on the top, on the right, the Cowper Nicolini Madonna by Raphael, and you can see the actual book with the picture attached to it, and in the margin, penned is a man's name, Vanoni. Well, it turns out Vanoni was the framer, and many of these pieces were framed and reframed at the discretion of the buyers, and you have a ledger listing many of the paintings that went through Vanoni, and in fact, when the gallery unframed it, we found his signature on the inside, and it's a fascinating description of these pieces. It's actually terrifying how many times he went back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. So those are subjects from some of the articles not discussed, but now I'd like to share a sampling of the volume from as many points of view as we can accommodate in 40 minutes. Works from four different media, sculpture, paper, textile, and painting, will be discussed from one particular perspective. Alison Lux, the curator of early European sculpture, will pose the art historical questions surrounding technical study and conservation treatment of the iconic terracotta sculpture of Lorenzo de' Medici. The Paper Conservators, Vantage Point, is presented by Kimberly Schenk, head of paper conservation, in the context of studying a rare page from Giorgio Vasari's Libro dei Zizegni. Vasari affixed drawings by his contemporaries to the pages of the Libro, and the, the trained viewer is provided with a snapshot into the intersection of artistic display, historiography, and artistic production at a remarkable moment in history. Identifying the extraordinary combination of dyes, natural fibers, and gilt foil wrapped silk yarns of the magnificent Mazarin tapestry, as revealed through instrumental analysis, will be discussed by Lisa Glinsman, conservation scientist here at the gallery, and Melanie Gifford, research conservator and co-editor, managing editor of the volume, will reveal the secrets of preserving artistic intent during conservation treatment of the Van Eyck's masterpiece, The Annunciation. So without further ado, I will turn you over to Alison Lux, who will discuss the 19th century terracotta bust, or is it 16th century? Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. I'm Alison Lux, curator of early European sculpture here at the gallery, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging my co-authors, conservators Shelley Sturman and Michael Bellman. It was a pleasure to collaborate with them on the study and treatment of an Italian Renaissance portrait bust that qualifies, as Daphne said, as an iconic example from our sculpture collection. I use the term iconic advisedly as we have an exhibition full of actual icons from Byzantium in the West Building at the moment, which I hope you'll all get to see. Here today, it means a work a work easily recognized as one of the most important in the National Gallery's collections, and also as a well-known portrait of a significant personality, though one active in political and cultural history rather than sacred history. This bust has been chosen for reproduction in many contexts, of to show you just a few from popular books on Renaissance history, like this one from 1961, to a plethora of book covers, uh, postcards in our shop, and even on the upper left, a local transit ticket in the 1940s. In fact, the Lorenzo bust is so iconic that it was requested for loan to an exhibition in Bonn, Germany, celebrating Renaissance Florence, and that's where it is at the moment. 
Lorenzo de' Medici, who lived from 1449 to 1492, was the head of the banking family that essentially ruled the Italian city-state of Florence in the late 15th century, in the time of Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and the young Michelangelo. The bust, which came to the National Gallery from the Crescol Foundation in 1943, was even attributed to Michelangelo in the early 19th century, but by 1862, it was assigned to Andrea del Verrocchio, a favorite Medici artist and the teacher of Leonardo da Vinci. I show it to you here with Verrocchio's portrait, equestrian portrait of another determined leader, Colleoni. Lorenzo was a poet, statesman, and a thinly disguised autocrat. The brooding gaze in our portrait suggests an uneasy balance between sensitive intelligence and ruthless force. Some scholars thought the portrayal was too good to be true and wondered whether the bust might have been made in the 19th century when romanticizing biographies were spreading the cult of Lorenzo. It was possible to confirm that we were dealing with a Renaissance object through a test called thermoluminescence, which measures quantities of energy given off by certain radioactive elements that occur naturally in clay. When the clay is fired, which makes it terracotta, terracotta means, of course, baked earth or cooked earth, that energy is reduced to zero and begins to build up again so that a sample of the clay can be tested to determine the approximate time that has elapsed since its last firing. This method doesn't give an exact date, but it ruled out the 19th century. The bust was fired between 350 and 600 years ago. Many questions about its production remained and prompted the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts to organize a curatorial conservation colloquy here at the National Gallery in 1996 to investigate this and our other Medici bust attributed to Verrocchio, a portrait of Lorenzo's brother Giuliano, which is on view in the West Building at the moment. That gathering led to a new and considerably more nuanced attribution of the portrait of Lorenzo, but it also inspired a proposal, and I can discuss that attribution questions if you want to hear more about it, but it also led to a proposal for a new conservation study to learn more about how and perhaps when the bust was made. Portrait busts in painted terracotta were popular in Renaissance Florence, but relatively few have come down to us with their colors well-preserved. So we needed to explore the alterations Lorenzo had undergone over five centuries, to learn more about what was original, what was lost, and what was added in order to make informed decisions about how to treat it. The project began in the early 2000s. It was completed in 2006, and it has received its first detailed publication in Facture. The bust when we began, as you see there from a, a postcard from the 1990s, had a somber monochrome look with a dark blue tunic and a reddish-brown headdress and sleeves with flickers of brighter red visible under strong illumination. That coloring gave it an impressive aura of age, but was not necessarily what the original patron and artist had had in mind or what Renaissance viewers had seen. Some guidance for that was available, and this is one way or one example of ways that art history can help with conservation, in a small painting from a series of portraits of Medici ancestors made by Bronzino and his workshop in the 1550s for Duke Cosimo I, Lorenzo's grandson. Since the paintings of Lorenzo's grandfather, father, and brother in the same series were based on sculptures that survive today, a sculptural model seemed likely for the portrait of Lorenzo as well, and the Washington bust was the obvious candidate. The painting gave hints of how the colors of the busts, bust might have looked in their original state. The conservators took small paint samples and discovered that the present coloration includes several layers of relatively modern varnish, overpaint, and dirt. As this sample from the tunic shows, number nine is a layer of dirt. What's above it is modern overpaint, varnish, and more dirt, 
What's below it are early colors, probably going back to the origins of the bust. Michael Bellman began to remove those upper layers using solvents, carefully tested first for strength, and applied with cotton swabs or tissue poultices to soften the overpaint and allow it to be gently swabbed away. As the cleaning progressed, we were excited to discover not only colors closer to those in the Bronzino painting, but even the edge of a camicia, a white shirt such as was worn in the Renaissance and such as had appeared in the painting, and that proved to be present on the bust as well. Cleaning also brought out the brilliant red of the headdress, called a capuccio, the costume of a typical Florentine businessman that Lorenzo used to wear as part of his claim that he was just another citizen. The Bronzino painting shows the capuccio in its complete condition, indicating that a crucial element the long panel descending on the wearer's right, called a becchetto, had been broken off, absent here. In the Washington bust, 19th century restorers had built up its remains as a kind of ear-shaped form on the right shoulder, and we decided that that ought to be removed because it was misleading. Uh, We know of one other bust in the Victorian Albert Museum that retains a becchetto, and that gives you an idea of what it's like. Uh, we got rid of the ear-like form, but decided not to reconstruct the becchetto, which might have been misleading in a different way. The cleaning also revealed peach-colored flesh tones and stubble on the cheeks and chin. In the eyes, the whites and irises survived only as flecks of paint. Limited infill painting was done to suggest rather than try to recreate their look. The dark tunic proved to be a deep mulberry purple called pavonazzo, characteristic of late 15th century Florentine dress, and specifically mentioned by a contemporary as the color Lorenzo wore in public. The study also led to discoveries about what was below the paint. The massive, simple forms of the chest and shoulders were built up from coils or gathers of clay pressed together, Um, the headdress made from masses and slabs that were rolled and draped, But surprisingly, as in this view of the inside, it turned out that most of the back and arms below the shoulders were made not of clay but of plaster. And this orange area is clay. That's the chest up here. And around it, this pinkish area, painted pink, is plaster, filling in losses, which are the lower arms and most of the back. Presumably, the plaster was introduced to repair old damage to the back of the bust, damage perhaps occasioned by a deliberate campaign to adapt it to a shallow setting in a wall. The plaster repairs on the back and arms were retained. The uh, Below the white line is plaster. Uh, above it is more or less is clay. Uh, the plaster was retained, uh, because we believe that it actually, the fills reflect the original state of the bust, the form typical for Florentine portrait busts, but also because they help it to stand up. The made-up areas on the lower sleeves are now indicated by a slightly darker red down here, which is an unobtrusive way to show where conservation work has been done. Photography inside the head showed distinct finger impressions and forms that are closely consistent on the interior and exterior. And what we're looking at is the nose. This is the shape of the nose from the inside. Both those features, the consistent forms and the signs of finger marks, indicate the face was made by pressing clay into a mold, even if the features were probably refined by hand afterward. That was an exciting discovery because the face closely resembles the mask molded from Lorenzo's face immediately after his death in 1492 on your left, uh, the most faithful kind of likeness before photography. Colleagues in Florence provided us with a cast of the death mask, which is the image on your right in this slide, to help with the 1996 colloquy. Measurements taken then seemed to indicate that the face on the bust was bigger than the mask, but the new evidence for a molded face has encouraged us to revisit the question of whether the mold used to form it might have been taken from a death mask after all.
It might be possible one day to arrange for three-dimensional laser scans of the face and the mask to create computer models that can be closely compared to see how much the dimensions and forms really do correspond. The computer also allowed our conservators to create a virtual image of the original state of the bust, going farther than we would on the original object, and subject to refinement as we learn more. So this collaboration between curators and conservators is still in progress. Meanwhile, we invite you to visit the bust after it returns to us in late March to admire not only the portrait, but the skills our conservators have devoted to bringing an icon back to life. Good afternoon. I'm Kimberly Shank. Giorgio Vasari, the architect, painter, and connoisseur, is best known today for writing the lives of the most eminent painters, sculptors, and architects, first published in 1550. In this highly influential work, Vasari chronicled the development of Italian art in the Renaissance. In a parallel effort to his biographies, Vasari assembled more than 500 drawings, which he referred to collectively as his Libro de Disegni, or Book of Drawings. He mounted the drawings onto sheets of paper and bordered the works with meticulously constructed decorative frames drawn in ink. A superb example from Vasari's Libro is in the collection of the National Gallery of Art. It is a double-sided, richly embellished sheet with 10 drawings surrounded by an elaborately constructed framework that unifies the grouping. Like all works of art on paper, the Vasari page is sensitive to deterioration from light, and its exhibition is limited. While most of the previous literature concentrates on individual drawings, our essay, in Facture, discusses for the first time the entire ensemble of a page from the Libro de Disegni. Today I will share how a conservator looks at a work of art. Paper conservators not only repair prints and drawings, we also use our knowledge of materials and keen observation skills to discover clues to how artists created works of art. More of our discoveries and the results from the scientific analysis are found in the essay in Facture. To assist in differentiating the drawings from Vasari's framework, the image on the right depicts the drawings in color and Vasari's mount in gray. On what is now considered the recto, or front of the page, is a silver point study of a youth at the center top, currently attributed to Sandro Botticelli. It is complemented by three figural drawings by Filippino Lippi, also executed in silver point. In silver point drawings, a silver wire, or point, is drawn across paper coated with a slightly abrasive material that catches and holds the silver particles. Originally gray in color, the silver lines tarnish into shades of brown. On the verso is a rare 15th century miniature painting on paper at the center bottom, today attributed to Raffaellino da Garbo. At its sides are two metal point drawings and above three pen and ink sketches by Filippino. Notice how the sketches at the top cor corners are trimmed irregularly falling, following the angel's forms. When examining the page, with and without magnification, we found traces of black chalk marks and numerous pinholes from which we can speculate Vasari's method of laying out and assembling the page. Chalk marks, shown here in red, delineate the center of the composition. The centers of the top and bottom edges of the central drawings are also marked with chalk or pinholes, shown in blue. These marks and pinholes on the mount and drawings enabled Vasari to move the core works along the central axis, spacing them as necessary as he developed his concept for the page. They also guided him when he adhered the drawings into place. After positioning the central drawings, Vasari likely marked the center of the remaining open spaces with black chalk, again here shown in red, to place the smaller drawings, the architectural features, and decorative elements. For the precise positioning of the octagonal drawings, he made indented lines shown in pink. 
using a stylus, such that part of the indentation goes on the drawing and part onto the mount. In this way, he could remove the drawings, apply glue to their backs, and then return them into the exact same location by aligning the indented marks. Vasari inked his design both before and after the drawings were glued into place. Here, the brown ink wash lies below the Filipino drawing, indicating it was applied by brush before the drawing was glued down onto the mount. Vasari then embellished the drawing with an illusionistic frame, penned directly onto the drawing after it was adhered to the mount. Conservators use different lighting conditions when examining works of art. For example, looking at paper lit from the opposite side reveals features not readily apparent in ambient or raking light. In the image of the Vasari page taken in transmitted light, the position of the individual drawings on one side can be seen in relation to those on the other side. The irregular trimming of the two sketches of the angels done by Vasari is quite obvious. Transmitted light also reveals patterns of light and dark in paper caused by differences in thickness imparted to the sheet from the wire screen of the paper-making mold. When paper is held up to light, you may see a bright image or letters in the sheet. This is called a watermark and is produced by additional wire sewn onto the screen. Marked in red is the outer circle of a watermark found on Vasari's paper. The horizontal red arrow indicates the direction of the widely spaced wires from the paper-making screen, called chain lines. Determining these physical features of a sheet of paper can be helpful in estimating its original size. Paper-making practices and common paper sizes from the 16th century especially that of Tus Tuscany, are well documented. The largest common size, and that closest to the Vasari page, was called Imperiale. By the end of the 14th century in Italy, watermarks were commonly placed in the center of one half of the sheet, here shown in blue. The position of the watermark in respect to the horizontal direction of the chain lines suggests the original size of Vasari's paper was probably an imperiale. Vasari trimmed away the top of the paper to produce a more pleasing proportion. So what else can we learn about the page using transmitted light? On the screen is one of the silver point drawings by Filippino Lippi. In transmitted light, we see its octagonal shape and the irregular shape of the sketch of the angel adhered to the other side of the page. Using this high-resolution digital image, we may begin to see features not readily apparent when examining the artwork directly. Scrutinizing the image carefully, we begin to see shadows that turn out to be two eyes that correspond to a drawing on the back of the silver point, now hidden by the mount. Turning the image face up, the eyes and face become more legible. Transmitted infrared imaging reveals details of the drawing even more clearly. The opacity of the drawing in the infrared image suggests the face was likely sketched with lead point or a carbon-based medium, such as black chalk, charcoal, or black ink. Media such as silver point or iron gall ink are not visible in this region of the infrared. I hope this brief introduction to the gallery's extraordinary page from Vasari's Libro de Disegni demonstrated how careful and thoughtful-looking contribute to our understanding of works of art. It provides the foundation upon which technical analysis builds. Thank you very much. I'm Alicia Glinsman, and I'm going to be speaking to you today about the Triumph of Christ Tapestry in the National Gallery's collection. Here at the National Gallery of Art, we are privileged to have in our collection one of the finest surviving tapestries from the late 15th century, the Triumph of Christ, also known as the Mazarin Tapestry, a reference to the 17th century owner, the statesman, clergyman, and avid collector, Cardinal Jules Mazarin. Our essay in Facture encompasses scientific analyses on the tapestry, along with art historical information, and its treatment history and condition. 
Due to time constraints, my talk today will be focusing on some of the scientific analyses performed. This tapestry is an early form of what would come to be known as a pano de oro, or cloth of gold, a tapestry woven with precious gold and silver yarns. These metallic yarns make up an astounding 30% of this panel, and a set of these tapestries would have cost the Tudor court as much as a battleship. The richly colored yarns were densely woven with extremely fine details and subtle shading to create a beautiful and elaborate image. In this 13 by 17 foot tapestry, there are numerous woven vignettes featuring scenes from the Old and New Testaments. And the size here that you see is almost the size of the tapestry. As you can see here, the central figure of Christ reveals the sumptuous use of gold, especially visible as rays around the crown up here. But all of this that you see here and the brocade, it's all gold. In this detail, the angel's remarkably woven drapery, all gold, shows an embellished pomegranate design often used to depict abundance. This panel depicts the Old Testament King Xerxes wearing an ermine collar and brocaded garments. A flaxen-braided ester tenderly feeds a squirrel. As part of the tapestry's structure, slits are used for facial shading under Esther's eyes, nose, and chin. These three pages, which we will visit again a bit later during the analytical discussion, are depicted in a variety of fashionable costumes. Here you can see the faces of the pages, showing an early example of painterly effects in tapestry weave. If you look, you can even see that you can see the five o'clock shadow on them. <laughs> Writing for Facture gave us a chance to study the triumph of Christ's tapestry to better understand its method of manufacture and to characterize its extraordinary combination of dyes, natural fibers, and gold yarns. The process of making these metallic yarns was labor-intensive. The image in the upper right shows a piece of thin gold foil being laminated onto silver foil by hammering, as illustrated in Beringuccio's 16th-century pyrotechnia treatise. Gilt foil was cut into thin strips and twisted over silk threads before being woven into the tapestry. This was a tedious task, which Beringuccio states was accomplished by women who were more patient than men. The intricate weaving of these gold gilt fibers becomes visible under the stereo microscope. Here is a magnified image from an area on the reverse side of the tapestry. Note the extremely fine twist of the gold foil in comparison to the coarser red wool fibers in this image. So there's the wool fibers, and here's the minute gold foil. The increased magnification of a scanning electron microscope shows the foil hammered to one-eighth the thickness of a human hair, then wrapped around a slender bundle of silk fibers. So these are the silk fibers, and this is the, the gold foil. A stereo microscopic detail from a single gold gilt fiber reveals the fine, flexible gold thread, which is key to the delicacy with which the weaver rendered the complex design of the Mazarin tapestry. Our project provided a unique opportunity for us to test promising new analytical techniques that wouldn't require the removal of samples. In the field of conservation, sampling is approached conservatively. Given the architectural scale of, the many, of many of our tapestries, extensive sampling for an entire tapestry, of course, would not be acceptable or practical. While visually examining the tapestry, we began to suspect the use of two different red dyes, one that was more orange-red in color and one that was more blue-red. Using color reflectance spectroscopy, we could take measurements on the surface of the tapestry and mathematically plot the red yarns in color space, where the horizontal axis relates to the color's redness or greenness, and the vertical axis relates to the, its yellowness or blueness. Here is the color plot, where you can see our measurements clustered into two groups, the orange-red yarns labeled group one and the blue-red yarns labeled group two. Color measurement proved that there were indeed two different red dyes, and their spectral curves are similar to the root dye matter and the insect dye, Polish or Arminian cochineal. The color points within each group are quite widely scattered, indicating the diversity of the colors. 
It is interesting to see how many U's the skilled dyer could achieve using only two different red dyes. Clearly, this subtle gradation of tones was necessary to achieve the realistic effects of the costumes and portraits woven into this tapestry. Next, we wanted to see if we could confirm this identification using a different technique. The two, cons- the, the two conservation scientists in the upper right slide are collecting data from the tapestry using a new analytical technique known as fiber optic reflectance spectroscopy, or FORS. This technique uses characteristic spectra to determine structural information from the dyes, and it turns out also from the yarns. Because of the distinct amino acid features in the yarn, FORS was able to distinguish between wool and silk fibers. FORS revealed not only that the orange-red group 1 dye was the root dye matter, but that this dye was also used to dye wool fibers. And the blue-red group 2 dye was the insect dye Polish or Armenian cochineal, and this dye was used to dye the silk fibers. A near-infrared hyperspectral imaging camera offered us a new opportunity not only to identify the fiber types at specific points along the tapestry, but to map their locations in the tapestry. The image on the left is a detail of the three pages seen earlier with its four spectra below, and the image you see on the upper right is the resulting false color map generated by the hyperspectral camera. The silk fibers are seen on this image as white. The wool fibers are purple, and all this green is gold. As Daphne Barber's initial remarks alluded to, here at the National Gallery of Art, we have the rare opportunity for scientists, conservators, and curators to combine our efforts toward the greater understanding of works in our collection. The complexity of this tapestry presents difficult challenges. Scientists here at the National Gallery of Art are regularly adapting new analytical methods to study diverse materials, such as tapestries, works on paper, sculptures, and paintings, as can be seen in the essays in Volume 1 of Facture. Due to the sensitive nature of the dyes and yarns, tapestries are often on view on a rotational schedule. The Triumph of Christ is currently off view and resting in storage. I couldn't, in the amount of time allotted here, explain all our findings on the Triumph of Christ, but I hope this short overview has piqued your interest into the creative process of weaving such a remarkably precious tapestry. I'm Melanie Gifford, and I'll close by looking at the close interplay between two of the articles in the first volume of Facture. One is David Bull's essay on the conservation treatment in the 1990s of Jan van Eyck's Annunciation in the collection of the National Gallery, and the other is our technical study of van Eyck's painting practices and materials. This was a 20-year process I began the analysis in the 1990s in conjunction with David's treatment, and I really, we really only just as a group finished this treatment, this analysis, as we went to press in Facture. I'm not going to present the full story today, but I hope to whet your appetite for Facture with a glimpse under the skin, so to speak, to see the underdrawing that Van Eyck used when he prepared his composition for this painting. Recently, we made new infrared reflectography images using a very high-resolution lens designed by our colleague, John Delaney. And I suggest that, first of all, I'll just point out some of the beautiful features, like the feathery hair and the sensitive, delicate shading that Van Eyck uses. But I suggest you go to our paper for Kathy Metzger's sensitive discussion of the underdrawing, enriched by these wonderful new images. As you see it today in the galleries, the painting is spectacular. It probably was made for the Burgundian court in Dijon in the early 15th century. And you have to realize that this is just one wing of a small, precious, triptych altarpiece. So when you think of it in that context, you can imagine how glorious the whole work of art once was. However, this is not how the painting appeared during, most of the, during the first 50 years it was at the National Gallery. The painting was acquired from the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, or then Leningrad, by Andrew Mellon, and it was part of his founding gift to the National Gallery. Before it arrived at the gallery, the most recent conservation treatment, or restoration, had been carried out in Russia in the 19th century, and this was a so-called transfer. Shockingly, 
The restorers in Russia removed Van Eyck's paint from the wooden panel on which he had painted it and reattached his paint to a coarse fabric, really the texture of burlap. The theory was to reduce the reaction of a wooden panel to the harsh Russian winters, but I hasten to add that this is never a treatment we would do today. It's a little overkill. (laughs) We always do a thorough examination of paintings before undertaking a course of treatment. This painting had much discolored varnish and extensive restoration, repaint where restorers had covered over old flake losses. And this is fairly typical of old master paintings. There was definitely evidence of damage from the canvas onto which the painting had been transferred, especially in this central background area. You can see that the thick threads have ruptured the paint surface. But despite this treatment, most areas seemed remarkably well-preserved, And here you're looking at some of the details of Gabriel's beautiful vestments and his jewels. But one area in particular was really disturbing. The virgin's robe had been completely repainted. And over time, that repaint had degraded to a chalky, opaque, gray-blue color. The question was what this repaint might be hiding. After careful testing, David Bull was able to remove the discolored varnish and repaint with mild solvents that had no effect on the original paint. Even the thick repaint in the virgin's robe responded to these solvents. And the removal of that repaint showed what it had been hiding. The first look is a huge improvement, even allowing for the damage that I pointed out to you earlier in this central spot. But... On closer examination, we realized that the virgin's robe, after removal of the the repaint, didn't have as three-dimensional a quality as much of the rest of the painting did. Now, we knew from other technical studies of Van Eyck's painting practices that he usually applied his blue fabrics, painted blue fabrics, with three layers of paint. Finishing with the final third layer is a glaze in pure ultramarine pigment made from the precious pigment that is derived from um, lapis lazuli, a semi-precious stone. With this final glaze, Van Eyck applied deep blue shadows with which he would have modeled the blue fabrics and the deep folds. Under the microscope, we found that there was virtually no evidence of the final glaze left on the painting. What the removal of the repaint revealed instead was the light blue underpaint. And in fact, not only, so here is the middle layer of the three layers of underpaint, and in passages like this, you see black lines that were part of the first layer blocking out the form, breaking through the surface because of the old damage. Van Eyck's final subtle modeling layer is entirely missing from just this one area of the painting, the Virgin's robe, but this is, of course, a crucial area. The question is what had happened to the blue glaze. When we undertook the technical study, we took just six minute paint samples. Now, I should point out that we take paint samples only from areas that are already damaged, working with an eye surgery scalpel. The paint, the samples themselves, are smaller than a period on a page of type. For today, I'm just going to show you one sample, which confirmed that the Annunciation originally did have a blue glaze and that it had been lost in the 19th century restoration. I was able to find the one place on the surface where the virgin's mantle was still intact. In this one spot, the hair of the paint of the virgin's hair had actually protected the glaze layer. This one precious paint cross-section showed all three layers of blue paint. So here's the preparatory layer, which is in a light-colored area. Here's a dark blue, and there's the blue glaze. And this is the highlight hair color which is what protected the blue glaze. On the right, you see the same sample after application of a biological stain. And what this showed us was that the glaze layer was different in composition from the rest of the paint layers. At the time, we thought it might mean that it was painted in a separate, in a different paint medium. But with new analysis, we've been able to carry out on the exact same sample We have found that the glaze is an oil medium, just like the rest of the painting, but it's far more degraded than the rest of the painting. Research is ongoing, but it seems to be, there seems to be strong evidence that paint layers that include pure ultramarine are more seriously degraded than other paintings, other areas of the same painting. Now, why the Russian restorers removed that degraded blue glaze 
whether it was by accident or it was a deliberate removal because they thought it was unattractive, is open to, to question. But this discouraging history set the conservator, David Bull, a real challenge. How were we to recreate Van Eyck's intended appearance? David Bull first painted the Virgin's robe very conservatively, just filling in the paint losses where it had flaked away. But he quickly realized that without Van Eyck's final modeling in deep blue glaze, this area is quite dead. It's a flat area in the middle of the composition. The final treatment decision was to glaze the exposed underpaint with an easily removed modern paint, something that will evoke the effect of Van Eyck's missing glaze. Now, the result is not the invention by the conservator. David's application of the final glaze was guided by his study of Van Eyck's underdrawing, which has a very detailed plan for how Van Eyck wanted the shadows to appear. David also traveled to study many other paintings by Van Eyck to understand the handling of paint. And here is the painting as it appears after the application of the final restoration glazes. Now, we would never claim to have exactly reproduced Van Eyck's artistry, but I think Van Eyck's in-paint is a remarkable evocation of Van Eyck's original effect, and the painting now again seems whole. The new understanding of the evidence of the painting, that the final ultramarine glazes are severely degraded, called, gave us a new understanding of the painting itself. We realized on second examination, or third or fourth, <laughs> that there actually is one surviving example of the glazed blue fabric as Van Eyck originally painted it, and that's this glimpse right here of the shadowy lining of Gabriel's cope. With the microscope, you can see free brush strokes of blue over a blue-black underpaint. Now, those final strokes are now degraded to a light blue, but in this shadowy recess, Van Eyck surely must have intended a deep, transparent blue glaze. Now, in, this is another point I want to make, that the National Gallery conservators, even knowing that this has degraded, would never overglaze this area. This is Van Eyck's original final paint, so we accept the degradation. It's a little bit lighter than he intended, but we would never replace this. Similarly, we now realize that the blue margins to Gabriel's wings are lighter than they would have originally appeared. And yes, in the back of my mind... I know that the day Van Eyck completed these celestial wings, the sequence from the brilliant orange and red yellow center through the dark copper green above and the deep red lake below would have ended in a clear sapphire blue, not this pale blue. But I always step back, and I love to bring the new understanding that I have of a work of art to my delight in the work as a whole. And I invite you into the West Building in Gallery 39 where this work of art is on view, so you can see the real and very beautiful painting. Technical study brings us deep into the work of art and its history. In producing Facture, we hope to share with you these intellectual puzzles and our privilege of wonderful intimacy with the works of art. And finally, should you want to buy your own copy, there are some available outside at the bookstore. Thank you very much. We have time for a few questions, I think. Yes. Ms. Gibbard, uh, the um, annunciation, is, is there any um, visual evidence that would support the triptych here? Because this one's so beautifully detailed that I can't imagine three of these. It would have been amazing. Um, let me go back to the painting. There is internal um, composite. Uh, Symbolic evidence, which is that this, um, the Annunciation by itself is not normally a painting. It's so tall and thin that that's typically a wing structure. But there is actually technical evidence, which is that the, the lilies, which are absolutely essential to the Annunciation, the symbol of the Virgin, are a late addition, not by another person, but by Van Eyck. It's not in the original underdrawing. So it seems almost certain that the church extended to a central composition here and, and another wing here, and the Virgin's lilies probably were originally in the central composition. The question was, was there any evidence for why this would be a wing and not an independent work of art? Other questions for some of the other speakers? Yeah. Is there any visual evidence at all to support the theory? 
Well, the the evidence this the um, technical evidence of the late application. Sorry, the question again was. Oh, are, the question was: Is there any other evidence for this particular work being part of a triptych? Uh, no, there is not. For that, we can definitely associate with this work, but there is archival records. There are archival records of a triptych in Dijon at the right time, and we don't have the exact um, symbolic program of that work in the records. But we suspect this may well be that work. Other questions? Yeah. The question was, is it fair to say that most old master art that we see, has it been altered? Has it had treatment? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, the natural aging process means that most works of art have altered. Ah, but I would like my colleague, the paper conservator, to address. I'm speaking as a painting conservator. <laughs> uh, are you ta- what period are you talking about? Old master um, dates. The question was whether uh, the works of art that you look at, um, have they been treated? And as Melanie said, uh, paintings are a different uh, animal than prints and drawings. Prints and drawings were often kept in albums uh, for hundreds of years. And um, their condition, they may not have been... Uh, they could still be quite fresh-looking and never have been through a conservator's hands or have had major treatment done to them. The treatment may have been quite minor. Um, However, there are prints that um, have been washed in water, but I don't know if you would be able to tell that difference. Um, But works of art on paper... uh, just to put it into perspective, the gallery's collection of paintings is less than 5,000. The gallery's collection of prints and drawings is 120,000. So when you think of art and sculpture, uh, it's kind of a broad topic, and I'm sure it depends on the medium. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming today and uh, sharing the afternoon with us. Thank you all. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. Thank you.